0: On Sunday evenings, we're taking our time to make our way through Psalm 40, and we've come to this fifth verse, which declares, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done. And last time I explained that when we think about the works of God, theologians have often put them into three broad categories. Now there's many other ways you could categorise the works of God, but here are three broad categories that really do kind of cover all the main issues. There's the work of God in creation, the fact that we are here at all and that any of this exists at all is down to God. Then we speak of his work of providence, which is our theme this evening. And then we speak of the grand work of God in redemption, saving us, saving his people from their sins. Are you a Christian who experiences undue worry and anxiety, maybe at a level that really need not be the case, that really ought not be the case as a believer? might it be that you still haven't really yet grasped the realities of God's providence? Some Christians are robbed of joy and thankfulness because they have yet really to rest and trust in this truth concerning God's nature and being They do know it's the truth, but they haven't learned really to rest their soul in it and on it. And so they are lacking in rest for their soul. And refusing or rejecting this truth means that you refuse to even contemplate that God could or would thrust you into adversity and difficulty in order to accomplish his purposes and his good and perfect will. Some Christians struggle in prayer because they still haven't seen how the reality of God's providence should be guiding them when they pray. So for example... When praying for the sick, their prayers consist mostly of help them through and make them better. Now, there's nothing wrong to pray that. But understanding the realities of God's providence enriches and deepens our prayers. There's so much more that God may want to accomplish as a result of that illness, so much more. And as I've been considering all of this this last week and reading again John Flavel's magnificent little book, The Mysteries of Providence, I've decided that this is a topic which requires more than one sermon, which was my original thought. We just do creation, providence, redemption. But there's too much in this subject just to do it on one evening. The doctrine of God's providence has many vital areas of application. It's a truth about God which helps us to understand and answer the really big questions. The really big ones. Like, why me? In that situation, in this circumstance... Why me? Why this? Why now? Why here? They're the really big questions people want answers to. The providence of God supplies the answers. It also enables us to recognize the responsibilities and opportunities that we have as all coming directly from the Lord. That ought to make us all the more determined never to waste or miss those opportunities when they come, because they've all been directed by him. So here's what we're going to do this evening. I'm going to introduce this theme of God's providence, just to try and basically define it and explain what it is. Now, after tonight, I'm not preaching again on a Sunday evening until the 17th of November. So here's some homework. We'll pick up the topic again on the 17th of November and we'll spend either one or two weeks more, I'm not quite sure yet, examining how and why this whole topic ought to make such a huge difference in your life and experience as a Christian believer. And in the meantime, if you've never read it, why don't you get a copy of John Flavel's book, that's how, that's how the front covers of two of them. It's been printed ver- on several occasions. Two of them look like that. Now, how can you get access to this book? Well, if you go on a well-known website where you can buy books, you can pick up a decent second-hand copy in good condition for 4 or £5. Pound. Or for 99p, if you've got a Kindle, you can download it onto your Kindle. Or if you go onto a website like monogism.com, you can just find the full script of the book for free, for nothing, online, and read it. It's only about 120 pages long, but there's spiritual gold on every page. And don't just take my word for it. Alistair Begg says it would always be on his top ten list of must-have books to read. Why don't you get a copy? Read it through before the 17th of November. It'll do you good if you've never read it before. And if you have read it before, as I've just discovered this last week, it will do you very good to read it again. (laughs) But what is God's providence? What exactly do we mean by this term? Well, we must, of course, permit the Bible to provide us with the definition and explanation. And I'm going to give you a series of statements. These statements are, are based upon the chapter in the 1689 Baptist Confession, which deals with this topic, God's providence. So these statements are based upon that. And then we'll look at some of the scriptures that reinforce this whole truth and show us that it is from the Bible that all of these things are are coming. So what do we mean when we speak of God's providence? Well, number one, and by the way, a a good way of uh, getting all of this, rather than frantically, frantically scribbling, is just get yourself a copy of the 1689 Baptist Confession, and it's all there. And that's available online too, with all the scripture proofs that you need. Number one, God... Being supremely wise and holy, and in infinite power and wisdom, has created all things. Well, that's what we looked at last time. But not only that. Upholds, directs, controls, and governs them, whether animate or inanimate, great or small. This he does in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable decisions of his will. He fulfills the purposes for which he created them. Everything was created for a purpose. So that his wisdom, power and justice together with his infinite goodness and mercy might be praised and glorified. So, this is the starting point whenever we consider God's providence, and we'll continue by simply drawing out further conclusions that must be true if this opening statement is true, and because it's what the Bible teaches about God. We read from Psalm 115 Our God is in heaven, He does whatever He pleases. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. In Daniel, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. We are nothing compared to God. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? God, you see, is guided simply by his own nature and his own attributes. And he never acts contrary to them. And he's accountable to no one. He's answerable to no one. He's influenced by no one outside of himself. Whatever he does, it pleases him to do it. And whatever it pleases him to do, that's what he does. That's what it means to be God. Which is why we are as nothing before him. Now, of course, all around us, we see in the outpouring of sinfulness a questioning of god and a rejection of god the sinful heart disagrees with god on so many points and at so many levels and rebels against him now that's what lies at the heart of all of the big changes in morality and sexuality and gender that have gripped our own nation we we don't want anything to do with this god and men and women do say of God, what have you done? No, we will not have it that way. We will not have it your way. That's, that's at the heart of sin, rejecting God's providence. And they think they have restrained his hand. They think they can. They think in many of the laws that they've managed to pass through Parliament, they've dispensed with God. The day is coming when the truth will be made clear to them. But all of this truth about God still stands. And one day his truth will be, once more be acknowledged by everybody and his justice will fall upon sinners. It says in Isaiah about God, he's declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things that are not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. How many plans have you made and you've never been able to keep them? For all kinds of reasons, that's never happened with God once. Everything he plans and purposes to do, he does. Without fail, and he does it perfectly. Known to God from eternity are all his works. From the beginning, God has known all that will follow and how it's going to end. Now imagine, imagine an author writing a book. Imagine an engineer Designing a new car. Everything evolves over a period of time. So for the author, there are rewrites. There are plot changes as the story develops in their mind. And for the engineer, there are adjustments and alterations and compromises in order to get all the parts to fit and function together properly and to be produced at a price that their customers can afford. Constantly changing... Constantly developing. It's not like that with God. God didn't sit down one day and say, I think I'll spend six days creating something. And then after he'd had a rest on day seven, on day eight, he says, "Mm, now, what on earth am I going to do with all of this? What have I made it for? That's not God. That's not God. Known to God from eternity are all his works. Not just everything that he would make, but everything that's going to happen with everything that he's made. All known to him before he even made it. From beginning to end, known to him. The end, fully known from the outset because of his infinite wisdom. You see, that's what it means to be God. And that's why you and I are so much less than God. And of course, as we've been remembering in our studies in Ephesians on Wednesdays, God's providence, of course, also includes our salvation. In him we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So now we can start to make some very definite claims about God that can only be made about God. So we can say, secondly, nothing happens by chance. Nothing. Nothing happens outside the sphere of God's providence. God is what we might call the first cause of everything. God is the one who's making everything that happens, happen. And they happen immutably. That means they can never be changed or altered. And they happen infallibly. That's mean they, that means they always take place without any error. It's exactly as God purposed it to be, according to his foreknowledge and decree. Yet by his providence, God so controls them that he can utilize any part of his creation to bring about his purposes. He actually uses his creation to bring about some of the things that he wills to do. One of the remarkable things for us to grasp as Christians is that he actually uses us to do his work, to do his work of evangelism, edifying one another in the things of the faith. Isn't that glorious, to be a part of God's providence? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. And in the Proverbs, some great statements are made. The lot is cast into the lap. The dice is thrown. It's every decision is of the Lord. Every fall of the dice is according to the purposes of God. There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he pleases. There is nothing so small and insignificant that it lies outside of God's providence. Well, he wouldn't be bothered with that. In fact, this truth goes much further. Nothing can happen unless God has willed it. This is far more than saying that there is nothing that lies outside of God's sphere of knowledge. When the sparrow falls to the ground, it's not just that God knows about it, because that's not what the verse said. The sparrow cannot fall to the ground. The sparrow will not fall to the ground unless God has willed it. To happen That's what the verse says. It's not just that God knows. God wills everything that's happening in this world. That's what it means to be God, you see. There's nothing in this whole universe which lies outside of the sphere of God's providence. Here's another great verse. Here's one for the climate changes. While the earth remains... Now, what are they saying? Listen to this. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God will preserve and maintain all things. Whatever whatever your position is on climate change, the promise of the Scriptures is that the cycle of the seasons... And the provision of food will continue because God has said it is so. That doesn't give us license to abuse the planet, obviously. But their doomsday forecasts take no account of the fact that all is being upheld and preserved by the will and decree and providence of God. He doesn't figure in their equation anywhere. Nothing happens by chance or outside of the sphere of God's providence. Thirdly, ordinarily, in God's providence, God makes use of means familiar to us. Ordinarily, he works in familiar ways. Yet, he's free to work without them. He's free to give them an efficacy or uh, make them do something above what they normally possess and even to work contrary to them at his pleasure. So in other words we might say well there are things that are just the normal way things happen and then there are other things and well we call that a miracle because that's not how things normally happen but that's what God did. And So it's God who maintains this familiar cycle of nature whereby crops grow, farmers farm and provide us with food. They're the means that God uses in order to do that. The rain comes down, the snow from heaven. They don't return there. They water the earth. They make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my my mouth. But in the wilderness, God sent manna from heaven. And sometimes that, that which we would normally expect to happen does not happen. As occurred when Daniel's three friends stepped out of the fiery furnace. The satraps, administrators, governors, the king's counsellors gathered together and they saw that these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head wasn't singed, nor were their garments affected. The smell of fire was not on them. That which you expect to normally be the case wasn't the case for these Yet those who'd thrown them into the fire were killed by the intense heat. When we think that God's usual means cannot possibly work now. So Abraham and Sarah, in their very great old age, now surely are beyond the age when Sarah could conceive and even if she did, could safely deliver a baby. But God is able to overrule their frail and elderly bodies and Sarah is able to conceive and safely deliver a child. Because God in his providence can work by his ordinary familiar means or without them or by miraculously empowering them in ways that we never imagined he could. And it's when God works outside of the normal means that we call it a miracle he can do that because he is God and then we come to the area of God's providence which really puts our finite minds to the test that God is even able to use the sinful designs and actions of sinful people to fulfill his purposes and that really starts to press us here Here's what they say, God's almighty power, his unsearchable wisdom, his infinite goodness, they're so far reaching, so all pervading, that both the fall of the first man into sin and all other sinful actions of angels and men proceed according to his sovereign purposes. Even the wicked things that wicked people do are all according to God's providence. It's not merely that he gives his permission It's not merely that he allows it. In a variety of ways, he wisely and powerfully limits, orders and governs sinful actions so that they affect his holy designs. Get your head around that one. Yet, the sinfulness involved in the actions proceeds only from the angels and men and not from God who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author and approver of sin. Starts to give you a headache when you try and work this one out. But you see, if you're God. So Joseph, you see, is able to say to his brothers in the closing verses of Genesis You meant evil against me. You meant evil. You knew you were being evil. You meant it. You knew it. But God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people. God doesn't simply rescue a bad situation and bring good from it. The whole thing is of him from beginning to end that which happened to Christ in order to bring about our salvation. The Bible makes it clear that the acts of wicked men in putting Christ to death were all according to God's determined foreknowledge and purpose. It's declared in the book of Acts, Him, Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, crucified and put Him to death. Who's responsible for what happened to Christ? You are. Who's responsible for what happened to Christ? God is. Listen to this declaration in Acts chapter 4 as the church calls out to God. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, that's God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Sinful, wicked men doing sinful, wicked things, fulfilling the purposes of God, at God's decree. And yet the sinfulness itself is not of God. It's of us. The sinfulness of men and women is of themselves. That's why we so gladly remain in our sin unless God intervenes and changes us. And we remain responsible and accountable for our sin. God in his great providence has ordered and directed even the sinful things that we do, so that even those things fulfill his purposes. Even in our sin, we can't escape God's providence. We've got Joseph's brothers at one end of the Bible, those who were responsible for Christ's death at the other and everything in between, none of those wicked people were led kicking and screaming against their will to do those things. They entered into it gladly and willingly according to their sinful nature. And this is actually a cause of great relief for us, isn't it? That the wicked schemes of wicked men, even those things don't lie outside of the scope of God's influence or reach. There's nothing which lies outside of God's control or purposes, even the horrible things that happen in the world. This truly is a sign that he is God. Now, in drawing to a close, there are two other aspects of God's providence which are worth noting. First of all, God allows his own people sometimes for a time to fall into a variety of temptations. He allows us sometimes to know and experience the sinfulness of our own hearts. Why would he do that? Well, he does it to chastise us and to discipline us. Or he needs to teach us humility. He needs to show us again the strength of evil that might still be within us. He needs to show us again the deceitfulness of our own hearts. He needs to show us again the weakness of our own minds and our own resolve. His purpose is to bring us again to repentance. And to depend more fully upon him. More completely upon him. That we might guard against sin in the future. And in all of these and other ways his purposes are being worked out. So that all that happens to his elect ones is by his appointment. And it's for his glory. And it's for your good. We know We know that all things are working together for good to those who love God. Those who are the called according to his purpose. And Paul's own testimony, the Apostle Paul, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of these revelations, I was given this thorn in the flesh. God did this thing to me, whatever it was, and he did it to humble me. To stop me being too big in my boots. So that I would learn every single day God's grace is sufficient for me. Because God's strength has been perfected in my weakness. But likewise, God as a righteous judge deals differently with wicked and ungodly men and women. Them he gives over their sins. He gives them over to the hardness of their hearts. We read of Pharaoh in Egypt two astonishing truths. Number one, God said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart and we read that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And both statements are true. Both statements are right. God withholds grace. when the wicked are overcome in their sins. And he'll put them in in positions and opportunities where they will seize upon their sin more and more. In other words, God sometimes abandons people to their own innate sinfulness, to the temptations of the world, to the power of Satan. So we read in Romans, God also has given them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Those who exchange the truth of God for the lie, worship the creature rather than the (laughs) creator, gives them up to vile passions. We look around the world today. We look around our society and see how everything is just apparently collapsing and deteriorating and just out of control. No, it's not out of control. Everything that's occurring is as God has purposed it to be everything that's happening in our nation is according to God's providence as he gives people over to their sin. All these people who are trying to take all of these things that so oppose the word of God. It's not that God cannot control them. It's not that somehow they've got one up on God. He's every bit over them as he is over his church. The Bible presents us with two very distinct groups of people in whom and for whom God is working in different ways. God has a very particular providence for his own people. This is one of the things that I need to highlight and pad out a little bit more in future weeks. God has a very particular providence for his own people, for his elect ones, well, that should be obvious, shouldn't it, in sending Christ. What he was prepared to do in order to save you. as a very particular providence for his own people. And much of what God is doing is all about his people and for his people and for his glory. But to the rest, there is a hardening of hearts. As you can see all around you in the world today. But those who are his he calls out of the world and he renews their hearts. Has he done that for you? In Christ he offers mercy and forgiveness to the undeserving rebel and he purposed to do it before the foundations of the world were laid. He purposed that while we were still sinners his own son would come into this world and die for us. And in so doing he would demonstrate the great love that he has for us. Who else could love like this? Who else could show such grace? Truly, He is God. And wonderful are all His works. And when you can learn to rest your soul in this truth, it changes everything. Lord, Oh, that you would teach us again to behold you, our God, seated in the heavens, high and lifted up above all things, all of creation as your footstool. Help us afresh, O Lord, to be lost in wonder. Love and praise. And in these things, O Lord, may we find rest for our souls, as all of our trust and all of our hope is placed in you and in you alone. And Lord, we rejoice in our wonderful Saviour, through whom you have reconciled us to yourself. Help us this week, O Lord, to reflect his love, his grace, and his salvation in the midst of this dying, wretched, needy world of darkness. Help us to be light. Help us to walk as children of light to the praise and glory of your great name. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.